love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Those are great words to sing before we get into God's word. A few notes before we before we start. Uh, there are sermon notes in the program. So uh, if you don't have a program, I'd encourage you to go get one uh, right now because that will help guide you uh, through this talk. And hopefully you can keep those notes and bring it with you to Life Group so you have something to kind of write down notes with and hopefully it will help you as, as you discuss the sermon in Life Group. The second thing is there are scripture references. Uh, this is a bit of a different series. We usually, obviously, if, if you're visiting today, we usually walk through... Um, we usually walk through different texts of the Bible, just straight through, and so we can just open up our Bible. But in this book of Proverbs, because the nature of Proverbs is that there's a verse here and a verse here, and they're not always very connected, we've collected all the Proverbs on a certain subject, and we put them before you there in, in, the, in a sheet. So it's a slightly different sermon or a slightly different talk than we're used to. So you'll, you'll need that scripture references, and I'll be walking through those as, as the sermon goes on. So this is our last talk on the book of Proverbs, uh, at least for, the, for this series. And if you remember the first couple of talks uh, on Proverbs, we defined wisdom as the skill of successful living, especially when the rules of life don't apply. Wisdom is what you need for the vast majority of decisions you make on a, on a day-to-day basis where there's not an exact rule. It's the kind of decisions you make where you can either flourish in life or not flourish at all. And the issue of anger is precisely the kind of thing we need wisdom for because simple rules just don't apply to such a complex issue like anger. Anger is complex. But although it's complex, we can't ignore it. It's just too important. We We encounter it every day. And it can be lethal. It can destroy relationships. It can destroy you. But I want to be clear here as as we begin. Anger can be expressed in a variety of ways. You might be sitting there thinking right now, I'm a fairly laid-back person. I don't tend to kind of spontaneously combust when I'm bothered at something. You would be wrong to conclude then that you don't have an anger problem. Because although anger is most obvious when someone's kicking the furniture or screaming at their children, it also expresses itself by emotionally shutting down or being passive-aggressive or constantly nagging and complaining. We all experience anger and we all respond to anger in various ways that are ultimately destructive to ourselves and others. So in this talk, I want to kind of lay out, as you can see in the sheet, hopefully before you, just three basic points about anger and God's view on anger from the book of Proverbs. First, we want to understand what anger is. That's that first slide, I think. What is anger? We need to first understand what anger is, or we're going to massively misunderstand how we should handle it. One thing you need to know about anger is that it's not in itself either a vice or a virtue. It's more like a capacity you have. Something like your capability to delight in something or to mourn something. You know, your ability to to delight 
certainly can be used for good or evil. You can delight in good things or bad things. And the same is true of anger. Although, as the book of Proverbs makes clear, anger is one of those capacities that is used a lot for evil. So how do we define anger? I'll give you the definition that I found most helpful from a guy. We don't usually give definitions around here, but I just thought we'll start with one today. A guy named David Pallison. Anger is our human response to things we perceive as wrong or unjust in a complex world. Anger is our human response to things that we perceive as wrong or unjust in a complex world. Anger happens when we feel displeasure at something we perceive to be wrong. Someone slights us, and we feel displeasure, and then we get angry. Now, we all know experientially that anger produces problems. But before we kind of examine the tragic effects of anger gone wrongly, I want to suggest to you that anger can actually be used for good. Anger can be used for good. The book of Proverbs doesn't actually give this kind of clear condemnation of of anger. In both Proverbs 14.29 and 19.11, to be wise is to be is to, to, to be wise is to have slow anger, not no anger. In fact, this is exactly the kind of anger we find in God. When God, Moses says, God, reveal yourself to me. And we have God in his own terms revealing who he is to, to Moses. And this is what he says. I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That's how God describes himself in one sentence. But we don't usually put those characteristics together, do we? Don't, do we? Compassionate? Yes. Gracious? Yes. Loving? Yes. Slow to anger? What? But you must remember that anger is a response to perceived injustice. And because God always perceives rightly, he is always angry rightly. Tim Keller says this. It's very helpful. Anger is what moves you to protect what you love. God loves his glory. He loves humanity. And so when he sees evil, when he sees sin that threatens you, whom he loves, his anger moves against that thing which is going to destroy you. Keller says, God's anger is simply his love in motion against those things that threaten you. But there's still something else. Did you know that the Bible actually commands us to be angry? In Ephesians 4.26, the apostle says, Apostle Paul says, be angry and do not sin. He doesn't just say, he doesn't just say, I think this is what I would say, you're going to get angry because you're a sinner and just you got, you got to figure out how to manage it. No, he says, be angry, meaning indifference to evil and wrong is a sin. Why? Because it's a failure to love the vulnerable and the oppressed. But that's only part of the story, isn't it? Because we all know from experience that anger can be really destructive. Just read through the Proverbs and you'll see sinful humans use anger as an instrument of pain and injustice, not as an instrument of healing. 
So we see the destructiveness of anger as well. Because anger brings conflict. Chapter 15, verse 18 of the book of Proverbs. A hot-tempered man stirs up conflict. Chapter 30, verse 33 says, As twisting of the nose produces blood, kind of a gruesome little analogy there, so stirring up anger produces strife. The story of the Bible tells us that our rebellion against God, our sin, what does it do to the world? It brings conflict, right? It makes people who are designed by God to be friends into enemies. Anger destroys relationships. It disintegrates marriages. It breaks families apart. It turns friends into enemies. It turns co-workers into vicious competitors. Anger can destroy every relationship you have, even the ones that mean the most to you. Anger also, it leaves people helpless and hopeless. Chapter 25, verse 28. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. In the context, I think it's anger here. The person that can't hold their anger in check is like a city that's vulnerable to enemy attack, right? Because the, the, the city walls have been destroyed. Anger makes you vulnerable, and not in a positive way, but in a hopeless way. Chapter 19, 19, verse 19. A hot-tempered person must pay the penalty. Rescue them, and you're going to have to do it again. You've probably seen this proverb played out in real life, haven't you? You know that person whose anger is always getting them into conflict, into trouble? And you know that you can intervene and rescue them, but they're just going to be in the same situation again because their anger is going to bring them back there. Their anger makes them unreasonable. It makes them helpless. One definition I came across of anger was, was just simply this. Anger. Adults acting like little children. It's kind of true, isn't it? Children often don't have the kind of mental and social maturity needed to understand that anger and tantrums just aren't very, well, useful. You know, Jane, oh, Jane, she's our two-year-old. She's uh, such a blessing. But she, um, when we're having dinner, she just, uh, about once every three nights, she decides she's not going to have her dinner. And then she's going to be up in the middle of the night hungry, waking us up. So we tell her, Jane, if you'll just finish those three bites... You can go and play. But you're not going to move from that chair until those, those your dinner's finished. And you know she'll scream and she'll cry and she'll send tantrums. And I'm just thinking, if she realized all she's got to do is eat those three bites, she wouldn't be cutting into her playtime. But she's not very mature. She's two, so she probably has an excuse right now. She doesn't. Her anger doesn't allow her to see that obedience is actually in her, in her own self-interest. Anger blinds us to our foolishness, and we become like helpless children. All right. So it can be good, and it can be really destructive. How, then, do we handle this thing? I think it's the next slide. How do you handle anger in yourself and others? And this is where we'll spend the bulk of time today. The book of Proverbs describes a person with a quick temper as a fool. Chapter 14, verse 29. Whoever is patient has great understanding, but the one who is quick-tempered displays folly. 
If you were at the beginning of these talks in the book of Proverbs, you'll remember that a fool in Proverbs is a really serious thing. Fools reject God's wisdom. They reject God's authority. And if their foolishness, if not turned from, will lead to their own destruction and the destruction of people around them. But, you know, the majority of verses in the book of Proverbs are not actually about just your anger, but how you respond to anger in others. Chapter 15, verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh words stirs up anger. 15, 18. A hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. If you respond to anger with anger... You're going to escalate the conflict. So on the one hand, if your heart is constantly swelling up with anger and you can't control it, the Proverbs are telling you you're in danger of being a fool. On the other hand, if you don't know how to respond to anger, then you're going to destroy your life and all the lives of those around you. So it's really important that we know how to handle anger. That's the big question. How do I be angry and not sin? If you're going to handle anger rightly, you're going to need these three qualities that you find in the book of Proverbs and actually in the whole Bible. You're going to need the right motivation behind your anger. You're going to need the right application of your anger and the right goal for your anger. The right motivation behind your anger. You need to always ask yourself, when you feel that anger welling up inside you, what is it that I'm really, at the root, angry about? It's a very revealing question. Chapter 16, verse 2. This is actually isn't in your sheet. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. If your anger isn't motivated by a passion for justice and equity and righteousness, then your anger is destructive to you and others. And quite frankly, most of our anger is not motivated by this pure love of justice and equity. Our anger is often motivated by personal vengeance. Proverbs 24, 29 says, Do not say to your neighbor, I'll do to them as they have done to me. I'll pay them back for what they did. You see, this motivation says... I feel pain, I feel hurt, betrayal, and I want others to feel it too. I don't want to be alone in this pain. I want the pain that I felt, others to feel it. You see, this is a twisted displeasure with injustice, isn't it? Sure, perhaps you've been actually wronged. But you don't really care about injustice, do you? You just don't like being the only one experiencing the injustice. So your anger is motivated by returning the same injustice back on the other person. Another wrong motivation for anger is our insatiable desire to protect our reputation or our status. This is where the majority of my anger swells up in me. You know, someone misrepresents me. Someone challenges my character, speaks poorly about me, 
and suddenly I'm a justice warrior. Mind you, I'm not nearly as careful as I should be with my words about other people, but when people are careless with their words about me, oh, I want justice. Some of you might know that when I was growing up, I um, I was kind of the wild child growing up. Short story was, I was a, a really rebellious pastor's kid's kid, one personality here. I, I was a really uh, rebellious pastor's son trying to break free from the oppressive bonds of conservative Christianity. More on that story another time if you want it. Well, not long ago, um, someone from my very distant past wrote something about me publicly that was incredibly hurtful and damaging to me. I felt like it completely misrepresented the truth It brought me so much pain that it took me everything I had that weekend to get up here and preach. I remember almost telling Sarah, I I almost called the end and said, I just can't do it. I obsessed over it. I couldn't sleep. I was sad, then confused, then angry. Everything in me me wanted to be able to go and defend myself publicly. And I probably could have done that. It wouldn't have been wrong. But let me tell you, friends, I realized in that moment that what I really cared about was my reputation, what others, how others viewed me. My real motivation in that anger was that I wanted to protect my self-image. I hardly get enraged when others are slandered. I hardly get enraged when Jesus is slandered. Why is it that we really get bothered when we're slandered, but then that person that we're not entirely fond of gets slandered and we shrug it off? Because our love is not naturally, or our anger isn't naturally sparked by this love for justice, but self-interest. Ask yourself, the next time anger swells up in your heart, What is it that I'm so eager to protect and defend? It's not usually a pure desire for fairness. It's not usually pure compassion for the vulnerable. That's what it should be. Your anger will really tend to show you where the idols of your heart lie. For me, I struggle with idolizing my own self-image, what others think about me. For you, it might be a certain relationship. And when someone, when that person that you love rejects your love, you get angry because you're going to have it. Because you idolize it. It might be a certain way of life. It might be the affirmation of your children. What is it that, if threatened, you lash out in anger to protect that thing? That will show you what you really love. So we need the right motivation for our anger. We also need the right application for our anger. I could say the right proportion for our anger. Our anger needs to be not quick, the Proverbs tells us, but slow. Chapter 14, verse 29 again. Whoever is patient has great understanding, but the one who is quick-tempered displays folly. Notice that wisdom doesn't say you need no anger. It says you need slow anger. It isn't reactive. 
It doesn't blow up. It moves carefully and cautiously towards the thing that is oppressing or giving injustice. This is so important to us. This is an important lesson to us because we as humans naturally want to defend ourselves and in so doing, we often rush to judgment. Someone slights us, we blow up at them. A minor grievance is made and we aim the bazooka at them to blow them out of here. We need time to question our motives. We need time to understand what really happened. We need time to reflect on whether their criticism of us has some truth. See, patience allows us the time for our emotions to calm down so that we can think with wisdom. But you know, we we don't often want to think with wisdom, or we don't want to think rationally, do we? In fact, sometimes we'd rather move quickly on our anger so that we don't have to deal with our conscience telling, telling us that we're being a real idiot. I've done this before with emails. You know, someone really bothered me, and I'm angry, and I want to give them a piece of my mind. So I go ahead, I write an email, and, and then I know I should give it a few hours or a few days before I actually send that email. That's sensible, right? But I don't really want to. You want to know why? Because I know that in a few days... I'm going to realize I was overreacting. But in the moment, I want this person to hear my full wrath, not not this watered-down version of it, do I? I I actually don't want to come to the realization that I'm overreacting. Wisdom demands not no anger, but slow anger. The right application is not over petty issues, but, but giving the benefit of the doubt to others. Chapter 19, verse 11. A person's wisdom yields patience. It is to one's glory to overlook an offense. Sometimes it's wrong to overlook an offense, right? Especially when the offense is taken at someone other than you. We are commanded to be in the business of protecting the oppressed. But there will be many times when you will feel slighted or oppressed by someone, and you're not going to want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Of course he meant to hurt me. How could these people possibly not understand how this would affect me? We don't like giving people the benefit of the doubt. But listen, friends, wisdom does not keep a detailed record of wrongs. Okay? Wisdom is not constantly calling out everyone who offends us. Wisdom is quick to forgive. It's quick to overlook a personal offense. It's quick to give others the benefit of the doubt. And thirdly, it's not full... The third application here. Wisdom doesn't allow us to fully vent our anger, but be self-controlled. Don't fully vent your anger, but be self-controlled. Chapter 29, verse 11. Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. You know, for a long time, and even today, really, there are many in the psychological, therapeutic community that will tell you to deal with your anger, this is like anger management 101, by just letting it all out. If you're upset, kick the furniture. Scream at the top of your lungs until you find at peace with your anger. 
Punch a pillow as if it's the person that you're really angry with. These are actually all quotes you can find from professional kind of journals on psychology. You know, I even saw this teaching in my daughter's TV show that she watches. Uh, it's probably more popular in the States, but there's a great little show called Daniel Tiger. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. You probably haven't. Maybe if you have kids, you will. But it teaches kids kind of these developmental life lessons. But you know, in this show, whenever Daniel, this little tiger kid, gets angry, the adults, adults always instruct him, stomp three times on the floor as hard as you can, and it'll make you feel better. Obviously, it's somewhat innocent, but, but I don't want Jane handling her anger like this. Every time she gets angry, she needs to vent it on the floor. I actually want to read you a response letter to a, a columnist who was advising parents to have their children kick a, a soft piece of furniture every time they get angry. This is the response. Dear Anne, she's writing to the columnist, my younger brother used to kick the furniture when he got mad. My mother called it letting off steam. Well, he's 32 years old now and still kicking the furniture, what's left of it, that is. He's also kicking his wife, the cat, the kids, and anything else he gets in his way. Last October, he threw the TV set out of the window when his favorite team failed to score and lost the game. The window was closed at the time. Starts off a bit comical, but then turns quite sad. Listen, we're always so enamored with the latest kind of pop psychology of the day. Not, not that it's all bad. We need experts in all these fields. I, I, I wouldn't doubt that at all. But pop psychology changes its approach nearly every decade, and, and here we have the timeless wisdom of Proverbs. Chapter 1632. Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control, than the one who takes a city. Restrained anger is what we need to model and teach. This verse controls, it suggests that it's better to control your anger and your, your sorry your emotions than it is to take over a whole city. So, if you have the right motivation for your anger, then you should apply it slowly, not over petty issues or personal grievances, and in a controlled, measured way. But lastly, you need the right goal for your anger. This is a slight difference from the first point about your motivation. You can have the right motivation, this desire for fairness or justice. But if your goal in applying your anger, but your goal at the same time can be disastrously wrong. Some people use their anger to shame others. Some get angry in order to simply destroy and expose others. Maybe you've expressed anger simply because you want to win and you want the other person to lose. I've done that. But look again at what Proverbs twenty four twenty nine says. Do not say, I'll do to them as they have done to me. I'll pay them back for what they did. Personal vengeance is never appropriate goal for your anger. When you get angry, when you're ready to step out in action to say something or do something, you need to ask yourself, what am I trying to accomplish here? What will this strategic word or action actually do? 
Am I saying this in order to shame that person? Will whatever I do right now destroy them? Am I simply trying to win an argument with this? Or will this action bring about justice? Am I really trying to correct behavior? If I say this, will it bring healing and restoration to wounds inflicted? This came very close to home for me recently. I asked Sarah if I could share this. Sarah and I were disagreeing on some parenting issue. Honestly, I can't even remember what it was. Happens five times a day, probably so. Um, A disagreement about a parenting issue. I said something that she didn't like. Then she said something to me that I felt offended at. Felt it was a job on my questioning my character. It hurt me. I felt offended, and and I had a decision to make at that moment. We had both been exchanging blows, but now I felt personally attacked. The right kind of anger would stop, move slowly, apologize for the offense I had made, and then explain that I felt upset and wanted restoration, healing. But do you think that's what I did? I retorted back by questioning her character. It was just a slight jab. But my response had one goal. I was trying to hurt her. I felt pain. I wanted her to feel pain. It was about ten minutes later that I was reflecting on what had just happened, and I was disgusted with myself. I knew what I was doing. I was just simply trying to tear her down. I wasn't resolving anything. I wasn't interested in justice. This is exactly why Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh one stirs up anger. Because the goal of righteous anger is to heal wounds and correct behavior, not stir up more anger. Look at chapter 25, verse 21 and 22. If your enemy is hungry... Give him food to eat. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. You see, when when people treat you unjustly and inflict their anger upon you, wisdom says that they are actually more vulnerable to generosity than anger. That's because a a person naturally feels shame and regret when they aim anger at a person and then they receive kindness. The goal of that kindness, which is described here as burning coals of shame, is that that person would realize the evil in their heart and correct their behavior. You see, rightly channeled anger is corrective and restorative. Friends, if you're going to do this, this is, it's going to require you, if you're going to handle anger rightly, to absorb a lot of pain of anger. People feel anger at, at, at its most basic root because some wrong has been done to you or someone else. 
And at the end of the day, God wants you to use that anger to protect the vulnerable and rescue the oppressor from his anger. You can only handle anger rightly if you're able to forgive. And forgiveness requires that you absorb a lot of wrong without paying someone back for the suffering they've caused. Oh, how true of this is this in relationships, parenting. You can't pay back people for the suffering they've caused you, first of all, because you don't have a right to do so. You don't have that kind of authority. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But when your child tells you that he hates you, when your spouse says, I just can't stand living with you, when your boss says, you're a failure, you've got a choice. You can use the anger that wells up into your heart to point a missile at them and destroy them, right? Lash out. Or you can absorb the pain of that anger and channel your anger at the sin. You can respond insult for insult. Well, I hate you too. You're, you're the worst person to live with as well. You're the worst boss. But you know what the result will be? Your child will be alienated from you. Your spouse will grow more distant. If you want to restore the person, you must absorb the pain that they've caused. And speak the truth in love. You must channel your anger at the sin while loving the sinner. And that's really difficult to do. But there's one who has handled his anger perfectly. And in that person we can find hope. What reason does the Bible just continually give to explain why you do not need to take revenge? It always comes up in the Bible, and the Bible basically gives the same reason. It's simply this. God says, I'm the righteous judge, and I will execute justice. So you don't need to. He will right all wrongs. God tells us that sin and evil is all dealt with in one of either two ways. It's either dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ or at the final judgment. For those who trusted in Jesus, all the sin and wrong that you have done has already been punished on the cross. That's why taking vengeance on another Christian is so wrong. It minimizes the death of Jesus. The sin has already been dealt with there, and you're essentially giving them a double sentence for their sin, as if Jesus' death was not enough to pay for that sin. For all others, God will execute his justice in the, in the final judgment. No grievance will go unpunished. Sins will be laid bare, and there will be a right and good judgment. Because the person judging is entirely good. Some of you might be thinking at this moment, 
I just don't want a judging God. I want an accepting God that loves me no matter what I do. Friend, if you don't have a judging God, then you don't have a God that cares about evil. And if you don't have a God that cares about evil, you have an evil God. And if you have an evil God, you most certainly do not have a loving God. You can only have a God who loves if he cares about evil and judges evil. All evil. But this is what the God of the Bible does. His love compels him to bring down his own judgment on himself. God the Son absorbs the right, just anger of God the Father so that he can save humanity, the objects of his love. God's righteous and God's right anger against evil is channeled against himself so that he can restore and reconcile us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of God channeling his anger to save his enemies. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friend, if we have a God of justice without love, that would be terrifying. It would be the end of humanity. If you want a God of love without judgment, you have a God that's evil and far from loveless, loving. But the God of the Bible is so filled with love and justice that he designs a plan to uphold them both. And in doing so, he rescues his enemies. That's a God you're going to want to entrust your life to. Let's pray.